This morning is the morning that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. If you know your gospel stories well, you know that he has been ministering around the countryside for approximately three years, give or take a little, and he has come to the culmination of his public ministry. And many of the Jews are believing that here is their Messiah. Now, they don't understand what all that means. But what they are expecting is this one who has healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons and fed the hungry and ministered to the poor and, and, and restored the lame and given sight to the blind. This one is going to overthrow Rome, set up a kingdom that, that is excelling even Solomon's glory, and rebuild Jerusalem, and and they believe that this is the one that they've been waiting for who's going to be their deliverer. And so on this occasion, as Jesus, the Scripture says, makes his way from Bethphage and Bethany back toward Jerusalem, in the fulfillment of the Scriptures, Jesus sends his disciples to, to find a colt that no one has ever ridden, You know, I love the little details of the gospel. It could have just said colt, but it said colt on which no one had ever sat, Uh, meaning unbroken, (laughs) wild, (laughs) unridden. And Jesus was able to sit on this colt as the master in control and ride this colt into the city of Jerusalem and all the people threw down their, their garments and, the, and branches were cut and the children were ecstatic and the parents were waiting. It was a parade to, to just marvel anything they'd ever seen as they were welcoming the king into Jerusalem. But you know, the interesting thing about that scenario is that Jesus was coming at that moment to a kingdom that as yet had no people. Think about that. Jesus, had he only received the glory and the praise and the hosannas on that first day of the week, as the king coming home to Jerusalem would have eventually reigned over a kingdom that had no people. Because John tells us in his gospel, he came to his own things. But those who were his own ultimately did not receive him. And the truth is that all of humanity was still lost and dying in their sin. And before the cross, there was no possible way for anyone to survive the grave. And the kingdom that had been promised to David that would have no end was a kingdom that would have had no people if it had stopped with the triumphal entry. Because until Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, to purchase a people for himself, his bride. There would be no one to live eternally in his presence. And you know, Jesus was not just about building a kingdom of slaves and servants, but God the Father 
and Jesus the Son had something vastly different in mind. Their desire was to have a family, to have a kingdom that included brothers and sisters, that included a family who bore the nature and the very mark of God himself in their lives and who would live forever together with Jesus Christ in that heavenly kingdom. I was asked earlier in the week, was I going to preach a Palm Sunday sermon or was I going to continue in Romans? And I started thinking about that (laughs) and praying over it. And it's like the Lord kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, look more closely at Romans. It is a Palm Sunday sermon. And in verses 15 to 17, we read about the kingdom and about those who have joined Jesus in that kingdom joint heirs with Christ. Look with me in verse 15 of Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As we come this morning to consider what it is to be a joint heir with Christ in the kingdom. You know, we always think of kings and royal families as having the heirs to the throne, right? You know, you think of the, the crown prince, and then you think of the other princes and the princesses, and, and, and all of that royal lineage that ultimately inherits the throne. We are joint heirs with the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's an amazing reality that God has brought to our life a kinship with Jesus Christ that makes us heirs with him to the throne. And so Paul describes that for us, in these verses in Romans. And he says to begin with, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Now, I want you to think about the significance of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Because this was a transitional moment in a new era of human history. This was a pivotal time. Up until that point, men and women were dying in their sin. And even Old Testament believers who were looking forward to Messiah, who had followed all the prescriptions of Old Testament Israel, were still waiting in what the scripture describes as the bosom of Abraham. They were waiting for the atonement because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away their sin. It was only in anticipation of the cross. So this was a pivotal moment in human history. When Jesus was entering into a time when he would literally take away the sin of the world and make possible people to come into a relationship with God and escape the grave, and live eternally in the presence of God. Even the Old Testament saints were waiting for that moment when Jesus would go to the cross, 
and liberate them that they might be ushered into the presence of the Father with no uh, blight upon their lives. There were other pivotal moments of history. Perhaps the first and most significant one was when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden and chose to sin. And by doing so, they introduced sin into the human race. That was a pivotal moment in human history in the lives of our original parents. And in that moment, without realizing the depth of what they were doing, they came under the bondage of sin, becoming its slave. And the the fear of God came into their lives for the first time. They did not fear God before then. They walked with Him every day. But now, all of a sudden, we find them hiding. Why are you hiding, says God? Because we knew that you were looking for us and Have you eaten of the tree, of the fruit of the tree? Yes. And we knew that we were in trouble. And so the bondage of sin and slavery to sin brings fear. And that was a dramatic change in human history, even though it was only with the first two people. Fast forward to Moses in the wilderness after... uh, probably close to 1,500, 2,000 years or more from the time of the Garden of Eden to Moses in the wilderness. And we have that time when God, for the first time, truly reveals the depth of his character. He has had relationship with other people. He had a relationship with Enoch. He had one with Job. He had one with Noah. He had one with Abraham. There were those who came into fellowship with God but how much they understood and how much they comprehended is unknown to us. But when they came with Moses to the mountain in the wilderness and God began to unveil himself in the law and in all of the Mosaic covenant and in the tabernacle and all of its symbolism, all of a sudden people began to to realize through Israel what kind of a God they were dealing with. A holy God, a majestic God, a powerful God, a God that triumphed over the armies of Egypt, a a God that could turn the Nile River to blood, a, a God that could triumph and be victorious over every demonstration of the gods that Egypt worshipped. He is God Almighty, Yahweh, Jehovah Lord but in the revelation of the law and in the giving of the covenants and the covenant of the law and the, and the regulations of the tabernacle, again, there's fear because there's failure. The law also brought bondage and the fear of judgment, the fear of the consequences, the constant offering, the bringing to the temple sacrifices, time after time, day after day, year after year, to atone for sins that could never really be cleansed by the blood of bulls and goats. Paul has been speaking of this throughout the book of Romans. 
And he brings us to this passage and he says, this is a pivotal moment. This is a turning point. You have received a spirit, not of slavery, which leads to fear again. In other words, here's a turning point in human history, but it doesn't take you back to fear or to bondage. It's liberating. It is freeing. It's unlike those other pivotal moments. This is liberation. This is true release. It doesn't take you back to fear. But he says, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Those words are so significant. They occur a number of times in the scripture. It's one of the things that made the Jews so angry with Jesus. Remember when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responded by saying, well, okay, here's how you can begin. Our Father, who is in heaven, our heavenly Father. The Jews and Pharisees went, (gasps) how could he say that? (coughs) When they would come to the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, they would not even pronounce it. They would be reading along, and the scriptures would say, and Yahweh said or did, and they would say, and the name, blessed be he, said or did. They would not even call his name. They would simply refer to him as the name. God to the Jew was holy, almighty. He was creator God. He was covenant God. He was powerful God, but he was distant God. He was up there. They were down here. He was awesome in the heavens. They were small upon the earth. He was the judge of their sin. They were guilty in his presence. They felt that distance. And so reverent were they of his awesome character that they would not even call him by his proper name, lest they profane it by taking it even upon their lips. And here Jesus comes along and says, Here's how to talk to Yahweh. Say, Daddy, Father, whoa, this was astounding. But here Paul is telling us, this is the spirit we have received, a spirit of adoption. We're in the family. We can call God Father. We can come to him in fact, the, the, the Aramaic babbling of a little child is Abba. You know, our children who grow up in English-speaking homes don't say Abba. They usually say Dada or Daddy, or if you're Spanish, they probably say Papi or whatever your language is. You know, but those little two-syllable words that go with mama and dada. <laughs> and we recognize those, and we say this is, the, this is the effort of a little baby. 
a tiny child to begin to address the parent who loves them, who dotes over them, who cares for them, who has warmth in their heart for them. I was talking with Brian just a week or so ago. We were talking about these children that we've been praying for. And and even after what to most of us would seem like an incredibly horrific kind of a parenting skill, you know, one of the concerns of the mom was, am I being a good parent or am I a bad parent? You know, I don't care where we go or where we take ourselves. There, there is still a connection with a parent and a child, even in the horrible, sinful things that are happening in our day that, that is disrupting that and the awful things that, that parents are doing to their children. At some deep level, there's that connection. And at least in the infancy, there is a recognition. This is my child. And the child begins to identify with my parent. And Paul is telling us that we have received a spirit of adoption whereby we can cry out, Daddy, oh my father, Father, with all of the tenderness and all of the intimacy that is suggested by the term. Most people are natural born into their families. I had the privilege of being adopted. I understand adoption. I was moving toward three years of age when my mother and my dad adopted me. They wanted a child. They had not been successful. And so they reached out to find one, and God put us together and gave me parents. And they became mom and dad. And I was remember being little and calling my dad daddy. As I got older, I think I shortened it to dad, you know, as men do that kind of thing, but He was a figure of stability for me. And I was his child. I belonged in his home. Pretty soon they had my brother and I had a brother. And we were a family. And this was my house. And I was content. We have received a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out to God Almighty, Abba, Father. Some people wonder, how can we keep it straight? How can we, how can we have the appropriate reverence for a holy God who is awesome in the heavens and at the same time, figuratively as it were, curl up in his lap and say, Daddy, I have, I have a need, Daddy. Can you help me? In the human plane, that is incomprehensible. But in the Spirit of God, without losing the appropriate respect 
that is due Almighty God. Remember how Paul started this chapter? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We can crawl up in the Father's lap and there's no condemnation. We do not have to be ashamed. We don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to feel like we are naked and undone somehow. We don't have to hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. We can go back to Him. We can come to Him. We can sit in His presence. We can call Him Father, knowing that this Almighty God has loved us with an everlasting love and Himself has made provision to take away the enmity, to deal with the strife, to cover our sin, and to bring us home to Him as His children. And we can call Him Father. It's an amazing thing. Some of you ladies may wonder, why does it say we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we may call him Abba Father? Why didn't Paul say children like he does in the very next verse? Why didn't he keep it general? Why did he say sons here? You ever react to that, ladies, in the scripture? You know? always son this, son that, this guy, that guy, you know. Does that, does that ever disturb you? If, if it's ever bothering you, I just want to remind you that we men are the bride of Christ. I don't know how I'm going to look in a wedding gown, but I'm going to get white raiment <laughs> for that wedding feast, and I am the bride of Christ. Obviously, there's some symbolic depth here that goes beyond gender issues alone. But just as there is a reaction within our culture to this thing about, you know, always using the masculine gender to describe the whole, that began with the women's suffrage movement back in the early part of the last century and into the equality movement in the 60s and 70s, the very reason that you're reacting, I believe, is the reason Paul says this here. This is really neat. In the first century, and it's been common throughout human history and most cultures, but in the first century, a young woman in her household did not have an inheritance. She was expected to be married, and she would have the inheritance of her husband. Well, it still wasn't hers, really, but if she was going to have anything, it was because she was attached to this guy, and he would pay a bride price to the family. He would pay that betrothal price, that bride price, that would sort of compensate the family for, for the loss of some labor, and he would take that woman home with him. But the sons had inheritance. The eldest firstborn son had a double portion, and all the other sons shared equally in the portion. So if there was four boys, you divided it, the family inheritance five ways. The oldest one got two, the rest of them got one, and the girls got nothing. You had to get married to get something. You know. Now, why is it important for you ladies to be a son of God? 
Ah, because you get an inheritance in this family. You're not left out. You're not on the sidelines. In the family of God, there's equality. We are all sons of God, just like we're all the bride of Christ. And we all have an inheritance equally amongst ourselves. There is no distinguishing between male and female in the inheritance that belongs to us as God's children. And so in a culture that only understood that in terms of masculine, everyone is a son of God in the legal sense of the right to inherit the family wealth. And what an inheritance it is. It's an inheritance not only now, but it's an inheritance for eternity. We are, as Paul says in a little bit, and I'll deal with it more in a second, we are joint heirs with Jesus. We share in all that is His by virtue of His relationship to the Father. So he says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Oh, Daddy, Papa, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, every evangelism training class I've ever taken at some point comes to the end where it says, now that you have assuming the person did, now that you have prayed the sinner's prayer and you have received Christ into your heart and trusted him as Lord and Savior, there's always the disclaimer, if you did that and if you meant what you said, you know, one of the methods says, turn to John, 1 John 5.13 and say, I can assure you that on the basis of your profession of faith, you have eternal life, for he that has the Son has life. And here it is, here's the proof. Or you say, I want to welcome you to the family of God. And we, we go through all of this evangelistic training, and we're all taught when the person prays the prayer to, to welcome them into Christ's family. It always gave me a little bit of pause. Because I'm not the one that can give that assurance. I'm not the one that can tell another human being, you're now going to heaven. You now have a home in God's family. You belong. There's only one person that can do that convincingly, and that is the Holy Spirit of God when he comes to reside in our person. And he, joining our spirit, bears witness and tells us from the inside that we are children of God. You're a child of God. Do you have the witness of the Spirit in your life this morning? Does He testify inside of you that you are God's? Friends, I, I realize I, I may be creating a lot of turmoil by saying this, but it's Scripture. If you don't have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart, I encourage you to go home and get on your knees before God and say, Father, I've been calling you Father, but am I your son? Am I your daughter? Am I your child? 
Will you confirm to me my relationship with you by the Holy Spirit? Speak in my heart. Because he does that. He testifies with us that we belong to him. And we receive that testimony by faith. I have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive my sin. I have put my hope in him. I have turned to him and turned away from all of my efforts and, and my, my striving after somehow pleasing God. I've turned away from that. I'm turning to Christ alone. I'm trusting him for eternal life. But if you're born again, there is within the evidence of the Holy Spirit who cries out within us, come home to the Father. You belong now to His family. You are His child. And what goes along with that testimony? First of all, children partake of the nature of their parents. Sometimes to my great chagrin. We say in our, in our vernacular now, it's on the hard drive. What we mean by that is what we used to say, it's genetic, you know. This kid acts like his mom, this one acts like his dad, and this one acts like both of them, poor thing. But, um, you know, they got the genes, and they, they act that way from their parents. I don't know how all kids sleep, because I haven't watched very many sleep. But I, I never will forget being totally amazed one day when I went into Stephen's room, and he was just a baby in the crib, and I went in there to wake him up. And he was curled up in a position that is exactly like I sleep. And I thought, this is scary. <laughs> I mean, here's this kid doing stuff that I do, and he, does, he, hadn't, he hadn't even seen me do it. It's just in there. It's kind of built in. We take on the nature of our parents. We get their genes. We, we have that stuff wired in. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we get a new hard drive, a new heart. And the Holy Spirit makes us partakers, Peter says, of the divine nature. Read it for yourselves. We are partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter chapter 1, I believe. If I'm wrong, I know someone will fix me afterwards, so I don't have to worry about that. But you read it. We are made partakers of the divine nature. And now you have his nature inside of you. You ought to see evidence of it leaking out. There ought to be a witness leaking out of you that you are a child of God because his nature is in you. And it just comes out in various ways. Children belong and they have favor in the home. How do you feel in your relationship with God? My oldest son, as you know, has grown, left home, started his own home, has a wife, a child. When he comes over to see us, usually unannounced, he just pops up in the kitchen. He has never rung the doorbell. He has never knocked. He punches the code into the garage and shows up in my kitchen. Why does he feel that he can do that? I don't think any of you would do that. I hope you wouldn't. <laughs> it could be embarrassing. 
But he feels comfortable doing that. He just shows up in my house because he's my son. That's his home. He thinks of it far more as his home than I do, frankly. <laughs> but he belongs there. That's, that's, that's his mentality. Opens the fridge if he wants something to eat or drink, you know. Uses the bathroom without asking for directions. That's his home. He's in the Father's house. He, he recognizes the comfort, the familiarity. This is where I grew up. These are my folks. I'm in my place. And I don't care how old you get. You have that with your parents. That you don't have, and, and grandparents, you know, it just kind of goes on. I used to rummage through my grandmother's button drawer. She had buttons for everything, and man, I had fun with those. Never even ask. I'd just go, you know, one time or another, somebody said something about it, and Graham said what I knew she would say. She said, oh, let the boy alone. He's just having fun. She didn't care. I was in my grandma's house. I belo- it was a family. With that spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, we are children of God. We belong in the Father's house. I don't lose respect for who he is. I don't lose awareness that he is almighty God. But I am amazed that he has opened the doors of his heart and said, you are welcome in my home. Come boldly to me. Tell me what's on your heart. Ask me what you need. Come into my presence. Do you feel that connection with God in your heart? We have that comfort and that familial intimacy. It's amazing to think, friends, that Jesus has paid such a price not to make us slaves in the kingdom, not to make us servants, but to make us his brothers and sisters so that we can go to the Father and curl up in his lap and say, Oh, Daddy, I need to talk to you. Daddy, I want to please you. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Papa God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Paul goes on to say, and if we're children, see, here, here's where it all comes together. If we're children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. What does that mean? That means that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Now, I can't be God like Jesus is God. That's not what it's... But everything... We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. When Paul prays for the Ephesians, he says, I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of Him, that you can understand what is the hope of your calling. I pray that you will will grasp what are the riches of your inheritance 
of his inheritance in you in glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand your hope and your inheritance. And I want you to know the surpassing greatness of the power of God that is at work in you, demonstrated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in power and glory. I want you to get a hold of that because it's yours right now. Right now, you are an heir with Jesus Christ. Right now, you can come, as the writer of Hebrews says, boldly into the throne room of God and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I have this need. I need, I need to come to you and ask you to do this thing. And the writer of Hebrews says, Do not shrink back, but come with boldness into his presence and lay your needs before him because you don't have a high priest who doesn't understand you. Your elder brother has walked in your shoes. He knows your feelings. He understands your weakness, and he is there praying for you. Therefore, come before the throne of grace that you can receive grace and help and mercy in your time of need. Everything that is Jesus is ours. Everything that belongs to him belongs to me. Paul tells us in Ephesians, we were raised in Him and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. Where is Jesus in this moment? He is seated at the right hand of God, the position of power and authority in the universe. All things have been put under His feet. And this moment, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-9, through 9, I have been raised and seated with Him in heavenly places, in Him. And everything that is true of Him is true of me. I rest in Jesus Christ in that glorious position. I have the authority of prayer to come into the Father's presence on the authority of Jesus, my elder brother, as a joint heir and pray with authority and power because God will recognize that name. And then, my friends, when it's all done, and this journey is over. And Jesus comes back and ushers in the new Jerusalem, the celestial city, the eternal glory. This king no longer riding lowly upon a colt coming into the walls of Jerusalem, but the mighty king of kings and lord of lords coming as conqueror riding this great white horse with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth and victory written all over him as he comes in triumph and majesty and ultimately ushers in the new Jerusalem, the celestial city, Jesus says to his disciples, his followers, his brothers, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and one of them has your name on it. You're a joint heir. You belong in the home. There's a dwelling place with your name on the door. You're an heir to the kingdom. You belong in the royal family. I have created a place for you where you can live forever in my presence. Joint heirs with Jesus. Brothers and sisters in the kingdom. And ladies, you have the inheritance just as the guys. 
your equals in the Father's inheritance. There's a place with your name on it in heaven reserved for you forever. And all that is Jesus, all that is his, is rightfully yours as a child of the living God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We celebrate today the triumphal entry, but without Friday and without the resurrection, there would be no people in that kingdom. But today we celebrate as we look back because we look forward. There was a Good Friday. There was a Resurrection Sunday. And there will be an eternity that we reign with Christ forever. Princes and princesses of the kingdom of God. Royal family. Praise his holy name. Father, we thank you this morning that we are joint heirs with Jesus. Heirs of God. Children. You are our Father. And we can be close to you in the intimacy of home. Thank you so much. Amen.